We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. We see you coming in here. Uh, we appreciate your time that you have here with us that you'll be sharing with us. All right. We are here with Dr. Molly Ness. We're so excited to hear from your presentation, Connecting Read Out Louds to the Science of Reading. And as a reminder, you can navigate to solutiontree.com slash readoutlouds. Uh, learn the step-by-step -step instructional plan for readoutlouds for all learners with the book by Dr. Molly Ness. All right, lastly, a little brief bio here. Dr. Molly Ness is a former classroom teacher, a reading researcher, and a teacher educator. She spent 16 years as an associate professor of childhood education at Fordham University, where she taught literacy methods, coursework, and doctoral courses in language literacy and learning. Her research focuses on reading comprehension, teachers' instructional decisions, and dyslexia. In 2022, Dr. Ness joined the nonprofit Learning Ally as Vice President of Academic Content. She serves on the Board of Directors for the International Literacy Association and on the Elementary Advisory Panel for Penguin Random House. How does she have time to join us for this webinar? Thank you so much, Dr. Molly Ness. I'll go ahead and hand this over to you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Well, it's always, um, I've always got the uh, time to prioritize talking about read alouds and how they fit into the science of reading. So thank you um, to Solution Tree and EdWeb for hosting, as well as my colleagues at Learning Ally. And um, I'm just so excited to be here today and grateful for you all for taking the time out of your busy days, um, wherever you are, um, to learn alongside um, our colleagues. So um, where are we going today? We are going to spend some time um, really focusing on how to plan effective read-alouds. Um, the idea here, we'll see some research showing uh, the lack of intentionality around read-alouds, and um, hopefully by the end of today, you'll walk away knowing how to maximize your read-alouds, be it in a kindergarten classroom or an eighth grade social studies classroom, because you'll note that um, specifically as I wrote this text and as I planned this thinking, um, I am really addressing content area read-alouds K through eight. So um, let's get going and really make sure we all are on the same page with what we mean by read-aloud. So you'll hear me use the term read-aloud and interactive read-aloud interchangeably. And I really want to draw attention to the notion that a read-aloud has that ping-pong of oral language or the serve and volley of oral language. It is a shared literacy experience either between a parent or caregiver and a child or, as we are talking about today, a teacher or a librarian or a school leader or whomever um, in an instructional capacity, sharing an experience around the high-quality text that again, oral language is the root of that shared experience. Um, so I'm gonna briefly overview some of the research showing 
the benefits of read aloud. This is a long existing body of research. And I should say that um, if any of this research is behind a paywall for you, feel free to reach out if you want to geek out like me and actually read all the PDFs and learn more. I welcome that. Um, you'll find my contact information towards the end of our time together. Um, but we do know from a longstanding body of research that the academic and linguistic benefits of read-alouds are just so, uh, so robust. We know that when children are read to, they are more likely to associate reading as a pleasurable activity. They are more likely to identify themselves as readers. Um, obviously, read alouds really facilitate oral language as well as improve academic achievement and things like vocabulary and reading comprehension and higher order thinking skills. So my hunch is that none of these sort of benefits are surprises to you because this data has been longstanding. Um, we know that read-alouds often serve as a springboard for student writing, and that read-alouds really are a key component in um, building students' domain-specific knowledge or content knowledge, as well as vocabulary. So again, not too many surprises in this research, and happy to share any of these articles um, more in depth. You can see, of course, the um, the, the citations are provided as well. So I wanted to share some research that's relatively new and, and pretty interesting. I was really um, in a happy place when I got to dive deep into the, the sort of geeky research around the importance of read-alouds. We know that um, particularly for our emergent readers who are developing phonological awareness, their understanding of the sound structure of language, that shared book reading or read-alouds are an essential way to get at that. This is a hot off the presses article from Reading and Writing Quarterly. And I love this notion that for our emergent readers, those preschoolers that read alouds turbocharge the development of those foundational skills. We have to be mindful though that the benefits of read alouds certainly exist well beyond students um, in emergent literacy stages in preschool and really um, exceed, continue all throughout schooling. But here's some of the research which is probably new to you, it was really new to me. We are now seeing physiological benefits of read-alouds. Um, and I'm gonna talk about some studies that um, actually look at two different populations of children and physiological changes. So this first study comes from University of Virginia, the hospital there, where they uh, created a, what's called a reading garden in the neonatal intensive care unit. So they were working with premature babies who were medically fragile. They were too medically fragile to go home. So living on, in incubators with all sorts of monitoring and such. And uh, what they did was they provided medically uh, appropriate read-alouds that correlated with the conditions of the child. So if we had a very, very low, uh, low weight baby, three pounds or what have you, maybe the parent or caregiver whisper read to that baby for 10 minutes, all the way up to babies who were ready to go home. They were medically more robust, heavier weights. Um, and those babies were read aloud to at a normal volume and duration, probably for about 30 minutes. And what we found is physiological changes. These babies, medically fragile, their heart rates 
sort of plateaued and calmed and, and um, sort of evened out and their oxygen levels uh, uh, increased, meaning their increased saturation in, um, in their breathing. And these, fa- these findings continued for 30 minutes up after the, the read aloud. So physiological changes in these babies. And actually as the mothers um, were surveyed, most of the mothers as they read aloud to babies, reported a decrease in postpartum depression and an increase in their understanding of the importance of read alouds. A second study looks at children, school-age children, who were chronically hospitalized due to long-term conditions, and we gave them a simple treatment as they were in the pediatric unit. They listened to read alouds, and these children reported lower levels of pain, lower levels of anxiety and stress and discomfort. And I love this quotation that merely by listening to a storytelling session or a read aloud, we see children who um, get to leave this anxiety in a provoking hospital environment. And we see um, positive physiological changes and psychological changes. So not only do we now have a body of research that shows that, um, that children benefit academically, linguistically, socio-emotionally, we now see uh, research which shows physiological benefits of listening to a read aloud. So important, in fact, that the American Academy of Pediatrics, the same group that if you're a parent or caregiver, you look to for recommendations about when you change your car seat from rear-facing to forward-facing and at what age you get what vaccination for your child, so important are read alouds that they are recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics in this um, document, which is readily accessible, um, an essential component of pediatric primary care. Um, we know, though, that there's a little bit of a mismatch between what's happening with the, the research science and instructional practices. So I wanted to pull from two recent articles which look at trends in read alouds mostly through observational and survey data of early childhood teachers who self-reported that the texts that they had most recently read aloud from, the vast majority of them were fiction texts. Furthermore, those texts tended to be the sort of beloved, treasured childhood texts that they had grown up with. They were about 25 years old. And um, when we were reading aloud about holidays, they were mostly uh, sort of narrow focused on Christian and American focused culture and and holidays. So um, not necessarily representing the diversity and wide range and current selection of of titles that are available. And um, if this rings, if this resonates with your read alouds, in no way am I saying that there isn't a place for those beloved texts of childhood, Corduroy and Where the Wild Things Are and all those, but just an awareness to sort of invite you to explore some of the more recent um, diverse texts, which um, often sort of give new new takes on on the world today. Um, This for me was the, the, big takeaways. I really started thinking about the research around read-alouds and also my life as a classroom teacher. This really rang true for myself when I was a teacher. So 50 to 70% of teachers report that they do not intentionally plan their read-alouds. And this was me when I was a classroom teacher. 
I would take my text that I was going to read either later that week or, or the next day. And I would uh, sort of account, uh, account for how many pages I was going to read, how many minutes I was going to read. Maybe I would identify a vocabulary word, but I wasn't really intentional about planning my read alouds. And this still is very much the, the, the trend. And here's what happens. When we don't intentionally plan those read alouds, we miss instructional opportunities. So when we do discourse analysis or analyze the language and the teacher talk during read alouds, we find that without that planning, teacher language tends to be more surface level. We ask more recall questions, more clarification questions. We have kids do things like summarize. So we're sort of skimming the surface on some of the instructional opportunities um, when we don't intentionally plan those read alouds. So the point here being, so many of us are not intentionally planning our read alouds. Well, what can we do to really maximize the instructional opportunities of read alouds? And that's where we'll spend the rest of our time. We also know that read alouds absolutely decline in um, as students get older and increase in age um, and grade level. This is the case not only for read alouds at home, but read alouds at school that the vast majority of teachers are reading aloud, great news there, but the read aloud does not always happen on a daily basis. Uh, many teachers report that the read aloud is something that they get to uh, by the end of the week, or it's something that kids, does, that kids earn. Um, and so often the read aloud is one of those things that's pushed out away when kids are not on their best behavior or a lesson ran long, or it's the, the crazy time before holidays. Um, but the big takeaway here is that not every classroom read aloud is a must do, have to do, get to do, want to do. And what we know is that read alouds in secondary classrooms, particularly middle and high school content area classrooms, are even less frequent. I will say that the scope and sequence of this book really goes up through grade eight. And by no means am I suggesting that there is no benefit for reading aloud at high school. There absolutely is. And I applaud those um, high school teachers who are out there doing it every day. It's just um, my teaching experience um, didn't pertain to high school. So I, I left that for somebody else to explore. So a big question is, in all of these conversations that um, seem everywhere about the science of reading, how do read alouds fit in? There are such so many conversations in social media and popular press and documentary films and podcasts. So many of them have been focused on the foundational skills of reading. So how do read alouds fit in? So let's clarify what we mean by the science of reading. And I am pulling from the Reading League, which is the professional development organization that's really my home. And they define the science of reading as a long-standing body of research that is multidisciplinary. So we are pulling from linguistics and psychology and reading research and special education and really examines the process um, by which we acquire literacy. So with that definition, we can see that obviously reading is a multifaceted co component. 
components. So um, I hope you're familiar with this graphic from Hollis Scarborough, who in 2001 sketched the original black and white reading rope, which is meant to illustrate how many components, how many uh, facets are go into skilled and proficient reading. So let's pause here a little bit to unpack what the reading rope shows. So what we mean by reading is really two major components that each are broken down into individual strands. In order to be a skilled reader, you have to be able to recognize words. I often talk about this as lifting the words off the page. This is your word identification, your ability to use phonics and decoding to um, both lift words off the page automatically or have a, a purposeful strategy for words that are unfamiliar to you. Um, but equally as important is the ability to understand the meaning of the words that you are reading. So you have to be able to obviously decode the words, but you also have to have understanding of language and how language operates. And so in many of the conversations that are happening out there about the science of reading, we've sort of been hyper-focused on word recognition. Um, and by no means is word recognition more important than language comprehension. And here's where we see the value of read-alouds. When we think about building kids' ability to understand language Read-alouds are really the, one of the most essential ways to do that. So when we look at these blue-greenish um, threads of language comprehension, we're talking about background knowledge and vocabulary and how language works, syntax and semantics. We're talking about verbal reasoning, so figurative language and making inferences and all of those rich things which help us understand text. How else do we do that other than language, than read-alouds? This, for me, is the real power of read-alouds, where read-alouds are an essential way to build language comprehension. So I encourage all of us, as we are talking and learning about the science of reading, yes, to be mindful of the word recognition components, but we absolutely cannot overlook the importance of understanding of the language components. And here's where we see the, the impact of read-alouds. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about vocabulary because a vocabulary is so, so closely tied to comprehension. I love this idea of picture books as lexical reservoirs and that when kids read picture books, they get exposure to words that they would not otherwise encounter in their daily listening um, and in the text that they read on their own. So as an example, I've got a picture that we might read um, to a early childhood classroom. This is Pizza Pizza by William Steig, a very simple book. It's about a little boy who wants to go play outside, but he can't, it's rainy. So check out this one sentence, Pete's father can't help noticing how miserable his son is. On this one page, as I'm reading aloud to my early childhood classroom, I've got two words, noticing and miserable, which my children are unlikely to encounter in everyday language, in everyday, the, in the text that they're exposed to. So that read aloud gives them sophisticated language which they may not otherwise encounter. 
So here are my arguments, my, my key takeaways. A read aloud is a non-negotiable. It's a get to do, must do, want to do, have to do, should do. For all classrooms, K through eight, all content areas. And it requires intentional pl planning. By no means am I saying, let's, you know, scrap all of the fluency. Let's, you know, not teach phonics or what have you. It is not a replacement for explicit instruction. It is an enhancement of language and those language components. And that when we read aloud, we also have to push past our sort of traditional notion of a read aloud. A read aloud may not look like a kindergarten teacher in her rocking chair with all of the kids sitting on the, the carpet in front of her. It's going to look very different in a seventh grade biology classroom or in a fifth grade civics classroom. This is where we're going to have to be innovative and creative and engage in diverse texts with multiple genres and formats and such. Let's start looking really at the intentionality of planning. And I wanna talk through a planning process that I like to do. I'll walk through it and then I'm gonna model it quickly with a text um, that I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a background on the text if you're not familiar with it. So this is a planning process that I use when I approach my read aloud. Remember my intent is to maximize the effectiveness of the read aloud. I want to enhance my kids' language comprehension. I want to build their vocabulary. I want to promote their understanding of the text as well as the retention of the content in the text. So I need to address that planning really intentionally. I think of this planning process as sort of my training wheels. If you think back to the very first lesson plans you wrote as a teacher, maybe in grad school or your certification process, you really went line by line about everything that you were going to do with that intentionality. And now you're probably at a point where you can sort of sketch them out a little bit more succinctly and still know all of the components that you're going to hit on. For me, this planning process is like that. This is the, the way that I learn the process until I become fluent enough in it and to apply it to any text. So let's walk through the three steps. You'll note that they all start with E as a way of just jogging everyone's memory. I see these steps happening in a before, during, and after sequence. So before I read my text, I'm gonna take that well-chosen text. I will say um, I don't dive into a lot of the um, selection of texts within um, my talk today. There are so many great resources out there for helping teachers choose texts um, and I will happily direct you to those. Um, but let's start with the at the part where you've already got that text that you're going to read aloud. The first step is you're gonna evaluate. You're gonna look through that text and evaluate the text for potential comprehension breakdowns, as well as instructional opportunities. What do I need to do to give my kids a leg up as they go into the text so that they can avoid any comprehension breakdowns or pitfalls or any of those times where their understanding becomes shaky? So all of that is before. During reading, I'm going to explain. What am I going to explain? I'm going to explain vocabulary 
And I'm going to explain what I am doing to model, to, to make meaning of the text. And I'm going to do that through Think Clouds, which we'll um, explore in a minute. And then after reading, I'm going to engage and extend the text. I'm going to engage in conversations around the text. And I'm going to extend those opportunities into authentic literacy opportunities. So let's see what it looks like. We're going to use this um, beloved no, Mo Willems Knuffle Bunny text um, as a sample. Um, and I know it's Knuffle Bunny. I used to say Nuffle Bunny, but it is Knuffle Bunny. I know that because I was watching Mo Willems himself talk about the text and he says it's Knuffle Bunny. So if it's been a while, let me refresh your memory. Knuffle Bunny is the story of Trixie. Trixie is a preschooler. She lives in an urban environment. You can see she's clutching her beloved stuffed animal. And the text opens up with Trixie and her dad leaving their, their house, walking down the block. And you can see Trixie's dad has a, uh, has a, a laundry basket with him. And Trixie, of course, has Knuffle Bunny. So the text moves next to a laundromat. They walk down the block and through the park into the laundromat. Well, when they're at the laundromat, Trixie's goofing around and she leaves her nuff, her beloved stuffed animal behind. On the way home, she realizes her mistake. She tries to communicate with her father that something's wrong. But remember, she's a preschooler and her language isn't fully developed. So her dad doesn't understand her. You can see Trixie's trying to say something's wrong, something's wrong. He doesn't understand her. And so she does what most toddlers do and has an epic meltdown. Well, they get home. You can see Trixie is not happy. And they open the door and mom asks, where's Knuffle Bunny? They then rush back to the laundromat, search frantically until they find the beloved stuffed animal. And those are the first words that Trixie has ever spoken. So I choose this text because I can explain it easily. It's familiar to many. Um, and there is a lot to do with this text beyond what we typically do. So let's imagine that this is a text we're going to use. Let's evaluate. Let's start by evaluating for background knowledge and funds of knowledge, potential breakdowns, as well as instructional opportunities. So let's talk first about funds of knowledge and background knowledge. So background knowledge is getting a lot of the spotlight in conversations about the science of reading, how important it is to students' understanding of a text, because knowledge acts like Velcro, if you know a little bit about a topic, um, you are more likely to take a new material and stick it to what you already know to enhance learning. But there's multiple kinds of knowledge. I also like to think about funds of knowledge, which may be a new term to you. It was written about by researchers in 1992 who felt frustrated that when we talk about background knowledge, we often have a deficit lens. We think so much about what our kids don't know. But our kids also know a lot about their worlds and their cultures and their communities and surviving in their areas. And that nuance of social cues, the ways to interact with people and their everyday lives and their neighborhoods and communities, 
those are funds of knowledge. So I was in a fourth grade classroom last week and we were reading Matt de la Pena's book, Last Stop on Market Street. And if you're not familiar with the book, there are two characters, CJ and his Nana. Well, Nana is a fund of knowledge because maybe in your community, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your world, a grandmother is called Nana. But if that's not familiar to you, that's potentially a comprehension breakdown. So what I do in this first step is I identify all of those things that the text assumes my readers are bringing to the page. So what does the text assume I'm bringing to the page? Well, I have to know something about a laundromat. And many students don't. Maybe they have a washer and dryer in their home. Maybe they've never been to one. So they have to know about the laundromat as a public place that people come for a specific reason. And if that's not a part of their world, well, no problem. I can show them a Google image of a laundromat and talk about what happens there. You also have to know about how an urban neighborhood looks and how life is in an urban neighborhood, what it means to walk down the block. If you live in rural Kansas, that may be unfamiliar to you. In this book, there are specific nuances, social norms that are a part of Trixie's family, that if they're not a part of your fund of knowledge or your life and your reality, may be confusing. Remember, at the beginning of the text, Trixie's mom stays behind and Trixie's dad goes to take the laundry. Well, if that's not a part of the world that you grow up in, that's potentially a comprehension breakdown. Another potential area of confusion is when Trixie tries to talk to her dad about saying that she left her stuffed animal behind. Well, there's a conversational turn and talk. The, the father is trying to understand Trixie. He's trying to say, I know you're conveying a message to me, but Trixie, of course, speaks toddler ease and can't get there. So that's a part of their language, of their interactions, of their community, of their social fabric. And if it's not a part of yours, that may be potentially confusing for you as well. And then finally, the whole text hinges on this stuffed animal is so beloved that they have to drop everything and race back to the laundromat to find it. Now, if you grew up in a world where you didn't have a blanket or a stuffed animal or something that was really treasured, you may not get that. So again, all of these funds of knowledge, they serve as kind of a menu of, all right, the text is assuming that I am bringing this to the page. And if I don't, as the reader, these may be problematic. So I've evaluated to see what I could identify as that background knowledge or funds of knowledge. And here are the questions that I sort of ask myself. I say, well, what does the book assume that my readers are bringing to the page? Are there places, locations, or interactions, or events that my students might be unfamiliar with? Where else might they struggle? What potential areas of confusion are there? What might I do once I've identified some of these things that might be problematic, well, what am I going to do to pre-teach or front load or set them up for success? So I suggested maybe I show on Google Images a picture of a laundromat. Just by doing that simple task, 
before reading the text to my kids, I'm improving their understanding of the text by making sure they all have the same understanding of this key location. I also, of course, think about instructional opportunities. Is this book great for inferencing? Or is this book great because of its use of figurative language? If that's the case, then that's something I'm really going to tap into as I plan. So all of these components are a part of the pre-teaching evaluation. Well, then I get to the part where I'm actually going to read my text. And to effectively read it, I need to explain two things. First, my vocabulary. And second, I want to model my thinking. So let's start first with vocabulary. It can often be overwhelming when we think about there's so many words to teach. How do I know which ones are useful? Well, I like to think of words in two buckets. I think of the words that I can just explain, just give them a tiny little taste of so that their understanding of the text isn't blocked but I'm not gonna spend a lot of time really diving into the text, into the word itself. There's also the words to teach. These are the words that if you're familiar with Isabel Beck and her colleagues are my tier two words, my ones that are really juicy. I want my kids to use them in their everyday speaking, in their writing, they're useful for my students. These are the words I'm really gonna teach and explain and connect to context versus the other bucket of words, which I'll just sort of uh, touch on and then move on. Those words that I'm gonna teach, I give the students during the read aloud a student-friendly definition. This is not the time where I say, let's use context clues, which can be misleading or lack information. This is not times where I go around and say, what do you think this word means? Instead, I cut to the chase. My time is precious. I give them a, gen a, a definition that I've generated. And that definition is short and sweet and simple and in everyday language. So let's take a look at some examples. Remember that pizza, pizza picture book? Well, if I came to the word miserable, I might explain miserable is a great word. I would love to hear my first graders use the word miserable. I might just restate it as miserable is another way to say unhappy. Notice is also a great word, a sophisticated word that kids could use. So I might just say in short, everyday language that notices when you see something. The next thing I'm going to do as I explain is I am going to model my metacognitive processes through a think aloud. I'm going to stop and identify those potential stumbling blocks and then take those stumbling blocks and transform them into a comprehension opportunity so that I model as the teacher what I'm thinking so that they, my students, are more likely to adopt a similar approach. Let's um, think through a think aloud a little bit more. So what is a think aloud? A think aloud is when I, as the teacher or a proficient reader, I crack open my head and I give a, I, I make the invisible process of comprehension visible to my students through words. So I am literally talking through my thinking in first person narrative language. We've all done a think aloud 
without being aware that we are doing it. If you've taught a kindergartner to tie their shoelaces and you said, first, I'm going to make bunny ears. Now I'm going to push one through another. That's a think aloud. You've taken a process and talked through it in first person narrative language. If you've taught a high school student how to drive and you say, first, I'm going to put on my turn signal. Next, I'm going to um, check my blind spot. That's a think aloud. But for our uh, time today, we're talking about think alouds related to comprehension. So here are some of the sentence starters that I like to use for my think alouds. You can see that they're all first person narrative, I language. And they all touch upon different comprehension strategies, clarifying, asking questions of the text, synthesizing, um, making an inference through I'm getting the sense here. And what you see in this picture towards the front, you can see me in the blue sweater pointing to my head. What I like to do with my kids is I give them a visual cue before the read aloud. I say, sometimes when I'm reading, I'm going to be thinking. So you know the difference when I'm thinking and when I'm actually reading. When you see the finger on my side of the head, those are the words that are in my head. If you don't see my finger on the side of my head, those are the words that are in the book. So giving kids that visual cue so they're really clear that reading is a thinking activity and they can differentiate. Here are the words in the book versus here is the thought process by which she is making meaning from a text so that I better understand the text and then am more likely to do similar behaviors in my own text. So let's take a look at Knuffle Bunny. What might I say? So when um, the sentence is Trixie and her daddy went down the block, I might model an inference. I might say the author is giving me a clue about the setting of this book. The author doesn't come right out and tell me that this is in a city, but I know a block is a way to measure distance. So I'm getting the sense that this book takes place in a city. Or when Trixie gets really frustrated, rather than saying to my kids, asking them a question and saying, how do you think she feels? I can model it. I can model how I'm making an inference. I'm getting the sense that Trixie is trying to tell her dad something's wrong, but he doesn't understand. That must be frustrating. So here you see that what we typically do in read-alouds is we pose comprehension questions. We ask kids things. And that certainly has a, a time and a place, but let's be really clear that those questions monitor comprehension. They don't necessarily build comprehension. But when we model through first-person narrative, I language, what we are doing as proficient readers, then we improve, we are building comprehension and building students' capacity to do similar behaviors to, in their reading. So in the last step after I've read, I'm gonna engage kids in conversation and extend the meaning of the text. So I look for three particular areas. I look for ways to engage students in cross-curricular extensions. So how can I take this book and make connections to math and science and social studies and all of those other areas of knowledge? I also think about how I cannot extend authentic literacy activities 
um, to that text. And then I think about how I can extend socio-emotional learning opportunities and support when the text offers those opportunities. So some of the reflective questions that I like to ask myself are, what are the opportunities? Are there times in this text that I might make a connection to something that we've talked about in another domain of knowledge? Or I might think about how the text itself relates to those domains of knowledge. How could I explicitly draw extensions to art and music and social studies and math and science. Now, this again becomes a menu for me. Not every text is going to have an extension. Some texts will have logical extensions and some texts you might be struggling to find answers or you might be struggling to find real robust extensions. So this is not where we're gonna force it. Instead, we're gonna look for opportunities that naturally arise. Let's look at some examples. So with Trixie, well, if this were in an early childhood classroom, we might do some basic mapping where we draw a map and build some of those social studies and geography skills of Trixie's neighborhood, and then maybe have conversations where we make maps of their own neighborhood. So we get some social studies um, in there. I also think about authentic literacy opportunities. And when I talk about literacy, I mean reading, writing, speaking, and listening. We so often think about literacy as reading and writing, but really we have to include the richness of that expressive component of speaking as well as the receptive component of listening. So here's what I mean. When I was working with one of my pre-service teachers um, way back when, I saw her do this book. And then afterwards, she did an activity where the kids took paper plates and they made uh, their own versions of a washer with using the paper plates as the window into the washing machine. And they drew Knuffle Bunny in there. And afterwards, I asked her of that activity, how did it facilitate? How did it build kids reading, writing, speaking, and listening? And she struggled to find an authentic connection. So it became clear that this was more an art project or an art extension as opposed to an authentic literacy um, opportunity where we engage kids with their reading, writing, speaking, and listening. So if literacy is really our, in, our instructional um, focus here, we might do some other things. Instead, we might ask ourselves some reflective questions. What can I do to extend their understanding of the text or the theme of the text or the character of the text through reading and writing? What's the follow-up going to be? How might reading or writing or listening or speaking about the text help them better understand the text, connect to the character, connect to the messages of the text? And what engaging literacy opportunities are there? So let's see how might my pre-service teacher in the course that I was teaching, however many long years ago, how might I have changed that art activity into something that was a little bit more grounded in authentic literacy? Well, we might have done a character analysis where we talked about what does she do? How does she feel and act? 
We might make flyers or wanted posters, imagining we were Trixie searching for her stuffed animal where kids would have to write a description. We might have kids, if it's appropriate for the students that we're working with in their home lives, they might conduct an interview with their parents or caregivers if they were able to remember their first words. Or we might rewrite the text as a shared writing from a different perspective. We write the story from Knuffle Bunny. So you can see that all of these ideas are more grounded authentically in reading, writing, speaking, and listening. And again, this becomes a brainstorm menu of ideas. Am I gonna touch on all of these? Probably not. I'm gonna choose what is connected to my standards, what's connected to my purpose in this lesson, what I have time for, but we start to shift into ways to extend the meaning of the text in authentic literacy capacities. Now, we also start to think about some of those socio-emotional components. We might have kids turn to a neighbor and do things like how share out a time, talk through a time when you felt like Trixie. How did your body feel? How did your heart and mind feel? Or if you felt that way again, how might you handle the situation? Help me think of a word to describe how Trixie felt. So we're building kids connections here. We're building kids empathetic skills here, all through those social emotional learning sort of prompts. So all in all, what does this look like? It looks like a process where we are, rather than taking our text and thinking about how many pages we're gonna read, how long we're going to read for, really identifying what is the instructional purpose, what are the funds of knowledge, the background skills, the um, essential information that kids need to know before they read the text? What are the opportunities that I wanna really focus in on as well as when I read these texts? As I read, I wanna be really mindful of the words that kids have to know just in that instance. It's just a word I can touch on and explain in the context versus those words that really are words I want to teach to a deeper level so that my kids use them in their expressive speech and writing. And I want to model, plan out those think-alouds, those quick stopping points where I crack open my head and model the invisible thought processes that I'm using to understand the text. And then after reading, we're gonna engage and extend kids in the learning opportunities, the critical inquiry, the authentic reading and writing opportunities so that kids really are connecting to the text at a deeper level, taking some socio-emotional learning opportunities from it, and then making meaning of the text through authentic literacy opportunities. So this three-step planning process is how I go about this. And I am now so fluent in this that any text that I choose, be it a seventh grade textbook or a um, speech that I read to my class um, as, a, as we study a particular historical figure, I can do the same process and be really critical um, in thinking about the intentionality of my implementation. And the end goal of all of this and all of the work that I do, 
particularly as I read aloud and am mindful of how read alouds not only draw from the body of research that is the science of reading, but really how read alouds build kids' language comprehension. All of my work is inspired by this quote. This comes from researcher Carol Diego, who writes that if we are not helping students to become confident, habitual readers, I don't know what business we're in. And so with this planning process in my mind, I was able to move from a point where my read-alouds just sort of became time fillers and a nice activity to something that was really capitalizing upon opportunities to build my kids' language comprehension, knowing that the ability to understand, to take vocabulary and background knowledge and language structure, how critical that is as a component in making kids confident, habitual readers. So let me share my contact information and open up the floor um, to some questions. And I will, of course, welcome you to reach out with requests for any of the PDFs of articles that I've shared. I'm happy to send those along as well. And um, let's open up for questions. So we do have a couple of questions here um, throughout your presentation, as well as towards the end. Uh, there is one here that says, do you recommend pre-teaching vocabulary or teach the new word as you read the story out loud? Sure. That's a great question. One I'm asked all the time. I was actually in a fourth grade classroom modeling a lesson last week. And what I did was I introduced the words themselves. We were reading Last Stop on Market Street by Matt de la Pena. I identified the words. I had kids say the word out loud because we know that with vocabulary, kids need to make a phonological representation of the word. In other words, they need to say the word, but I didn't define it in advance. Instead, what I did was I said, when you hear this word, as I read aloud, put your thumb in the air. And when we encountered the word in the read aloud, I looked up and all of the kids had engaged in active listening. They heard um, the word and they put their thumb up. And then at that point, I said, great job. You heard the word, the word that we were working with was familiar. Say the word familiar with me. And then I defined the word. I gave them that student friendly definition. I explained how the word familiar was used in the context of the book, and then I explained it in other contexts, and then we, we moved on. So that whole little vocabulary portion maybe took a minute or two, and then after reading, in the day after reading, and maybe two days later, I would revisit those words because what we know is that kids need multiple opportunities to engage at an interactive level with vocabulary, particularly our struggling readers and particularly our students who are English learners. Absolutely. Um, so how do you feel about wordless book and how would you use them? So wordless books, I think, are one of, um, they are always my best recommendation for, particularly for parents and caregivers. Um, when we say to parents and caregivers, read to your child at home, that often becomes this big, ambiguous, unclear statement. And wordless picture books, I think, are a fabulous way 
to help parents and caregivers uh, read and create oral language at home, especially for parents who are um, not, uh, not literate themselves or speak other languages. It's a way to remove language and the literacy component as a barrier or as an obstacle or as a sense of intimidation. Because with a wordless picture book, you're asking the child and yourself, if you're reading with a child, to make the story up. And that has just as many literacy advantages because it is getting at that right, that that speaking and listening. And again, those are components of literacy. So wordless picture books, I think, are fabulous for that. They also are great opportunities to model um, through those think alouds how the illustrations are representing text and what we're using in the illustration to make meaning um, where there are no words. So I would do a lot of think alouds around those illustrations as well. Oh, I, I hadn't really factored that in, that not, not having the words and actually, like you said, taking that away, taking that intimidation of the words, um, especially if, you know, the parent is um, not an English speaker uh, but you do know what the visuals are. And so that's actually very interesting. Um, all right. Another question here um, before we do go is, all right. So is it okay to not complete the whole read out loud in one setting or can we spread it out through the day uh, due to attention span for students? I think it is fabulous to extend um, the read aloud. I mean, in an ideal world, we pick up a picture book that we can read in 10 to 15 minutes, but that's not always the case. And in many ways, having read alouds that continue not only over the instructional day, but over multiple instructional days, it draws on kids' executive function, their memory, their um, retrieval of information, when I was a middle school teacher, I read chapter books out loud. And we would start by having kids generate the oral language either to each other or to me to remind me what happened last time. So absolutely, we have to push against the notion that a read aloud is only effective when it is cover to cover, 15 minutes as we sit in a rocking chair, Read-alouds can be poetry, they can be newspaper articles, they can be speeches. If you're a science teacher, they can be a newspaper article as you're talking about global warming and you're looking at the weather trends. So there's so many opportunities to read aloud um, and they don't have to be, you know, 15 minutes in one burst. They can be broken up over the instructional day and certainly carried out over multiple days. All right, wonderful. I'll get to another question here uh, while we still have time. And thank you, everybody who's still here with us. We appreciate uh, that you shared your time with us and then also uh, engaging in the questions and then also in the chat section. Um, all right. So how do you feel? Uh, how do you feel with the use of audiobooks to help build background knowledge? I think audiobooks are one of the best ways to, um, to build background knowledge because what an audiobook does is it gives kids access to text that they may be unable to, in, to, to, uh, in, to interact with on their own. We know that kids' listening comprehension 
is higher than their the comprehension that of the text that they are reading on their own until about seventh or eighth grade. So from kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade, we can listen, we can read texts aloud or have kids listen to an audiobook to give them that rich vocabulary, to give them that background knowledge and sort of close that gap and give them text that they wouldn't be able to access on their own. So audiobooks, I think, are the most fabulous way to do that. And they're, they're, they're so easily transportable. You can do them as your kids trickle in in the morning. Um, so it, it, it's a way to sort of give text at many, many points of the day. A good idea. As they come in, this is kind of like a, a norm or it could start being a norm for some people um, so that it could also be engaging. Um, all right, just one last question here, I promise. Uh, there's just so many questions. There's really great questions. Um, so uh, do you pre-teach the vocabulary or wait until you come to the word while reading the text? That was the one that we talked about. I wait until we encounter it in the text because I'm asking kids otherwise to retain it in their short-term memory and if they don't do something with it immediately to transfer it to their long-term memory, I'm not really getting that, that instructional value. I'd rather have them pay mindful attention to the listening than in the context of the text, define it, repeat the context, ex extend multiple contexts. And I will say that some of those questions that are not um, immediately answered here, I'm going to get a um, record of the chat and the questions, and I will happily answer them and then share them out to the uh, webinar community so that um, please keep those questions coming, as well as by email and on social media. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Molly Ness, for joining us here. We appreciate your time. And then also, uh, we do want to remind people that you can go to solutiontree.com slash Molly Ness. Um, if you want to connect virtually or have her come to your school as well. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Molly. Thank you. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Happy holidays to all. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.